This is Understanding Israel-Palestine. I'm Margot Patterson, the producer of this week's episode. Arab Americans are reacting with outrage to the Biden administration's September 27th announcement that the United States is accepting Israel into the U.S. visa waiver program. This is a program that allows citizens of about 40 countries to travel to the United States without needing to obtain a visa. Israel has long sought to join the program, but has never met the criteria for eligibility. Muslim, Arab American, and Palestinian American civil society groups say Israel still does not, and that the Biden administration is ignoring the United States' own rules and violating their rights to equal protection under the Constitution. We'll have more about this later in the program. During the last month, Hundreds of young Palestinian men from the Gaza Strip have been marching daily to the separation fence with Israel to express their frustration over conditions in the besieged enclave. The protesters are seeking an easing of Israel's severe restrictions on the flow of goods and people in and out of the Gaza Strip, plus an end to settler attacks on the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in Jerusalem, and better conditions for Palestinian prisoners in Israeli prisons. While largely unarmed, Some of the demonstrators have thrown incendiary devices and explosives. The protests have drawn little international attention despite being met by increasing violence from Israeli forces using live fire and tear gas on protesters. On September 28th, organizers announced a halt to the demonstrations after mediators reportedly secured several interim demands from the Israeli authorities. A video gone viral showing ultra-Orthodox Jews spitting on the ground at a procession of foreign Christian worshippers carrying a wooden cross in Jerusalem has drawn a rare rebuke from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and other senior Israeli officials and has led authorities to arrest the suspected spitters for disorderly conduct. Harassment of the Christian community has escalated dramatically since Israel's extreme right-wing government came to power this year. In an article published October 3rd, the Associated Press quoted Yiska Harani, a Christianity expert and founder of an Israeli hotline for anti-Christian assaults, saying that with right-wing religious nationalism on the rise, Jewish identity has been growing around anti-Christianity. The Israeli human rights organization B'Tselem reports that Israeli pogroms in the West Bank are working. The transfer of Palestinians from their land is taking place. Established in 1989 to document Israeli human rights abuses in the West Bank, B'Tselem notes that Israel has for decades employed a variety of measures intended to make life so miserable for Palestinian communities that residents will seemingly of their own accord uproot themselves. Under the pressure of escalating settler violence condoned and increasingly openly legitimized and supported by the state, many Palestinians are doing so, feeling they have no choice but to leave. Betselem reports that in the last two years, at least six West Bank communities have been displaced from Area C of the West Bank, an area under complete Israeli military control. Three of the six communities were displaced this past summer. Many people want to travel to the United States, but most have to get a visa in order to do so, a process that can be time-consuming and expensive. Under the U.S. Visa Waiver Program, citizens from some 40 countries are exempted from that requirement. 
It was announced September 27th that Israel will join that group, a decision by the Biden administration that has set off a storm of criticism from Arab American, Palestinian American, and U.S. Muslim civil rights groups, which said the United States is violating its own rules to allow Israel into the program and is permitting Israel to continue to discriminate against Arab American travelers. Here to talk to us about that today is Maya Berry, Executive Director of the Arab American Institute, which since 1985 has served as a political and policy voice for the Arab American community. She has extensive experience with public policy and like her colleague, Dr. James Zogby, the president and founder of the Arab American Institute, a background in Democratic Party politics. She was legislative director for the House Minority Whip David Bonnier, served as a member of the 2016 Democratic National Convention's Platform Standing Committee, and has attended all but one Democratic National Convention since 1992. Maya Berry, welcome to Understanding Israel-Palestine. Thank you for having us. Maya, the Arab American Institute, as well as numerous other groups, is expressing not only disappointment in the Biden administration's decision to accept Israel into the visa waiver program, but anger and outrage. I read Jim Zogby's public letter yesterday to President Biden, whom I believe he knows personally, and the sense of betrayal was almost palpable. Could you briefly explain why the acceptance of Israel into the U.S. visa waiver program seems so wrong to your organization and other allied groups? Happy to. And I think that's a really great way to frame this discussion because there are a lot of issues that one can take with regards to U.S. policy in the Arab world. And if you are a human rights advocate, particularly one that supports Palestinian human rights, there's a lot of issues there that play out. This issue, though, to be clear, is actually not about U.S. foreign policy. This is an issue about the equal protection of all of a our citizens. And to give you some context, we have been raising the issue of Israel's treatment of Arab Americans and specifically Palestinian Americans and others who advocate for Palestinian human rights at their border for decades. So when you talk about Jim's column and the palpable disappointment and frustration, it's because we are really talking about a decades-long issue that got us to this point. Historically, when we've raised those concerns to our government, the answer has been foreign countries get to control their borders. They get to decide who comes and who doesn't, who enters. They decide those issues. So the best that we've gotten has been advisories from the State Department. They've been posted very public on on the State Department's websites saying, when you travel to Israel, expect that your U.S. passport and your U.S. citizenship may not be acknowledged by the state of Israel. That's unfortunate and highly problematic. What makes this particularly egregious is that we now have a process where our government has said to us, Sorry, couldn't protect you earlier because it's a foreign government and they control their border. Now we are going to admit this country that's discriminated against you for decades into this visa waiver program, a a program that exists with 40 countries. Israel would be the 41st. That is to make the travel between individuals a, a more convenient process. So inherently, There's nothing wrong with a country joining a visa waiver program. It's actually a good thing. But when you take a country like Israel, who has engaged in this discriminatory practices for as long as they have, and then say, we will overlook the fact that they do not meet one of the most basic statutory requirements of the law, which is reciprocity. What that means is very simple. We will treat 
each other's citizens the same. That's all. That's all that means. We can try to kind of overcomplicate this. We can create a memorandum of understanding between our two countries and not release it, by the way. I want to be clear, a July 19th memorandum of understanding that was signed between Israel and the United States that facilitated Israel's entry into the visa waiver program continues to not have been released. So it's a document that we believe negotiated our rights away as equal citizens, and yet it's not part of the public domain. Our issue right now is not necessarily with the way that Israel behaves. Frankly, we know the way Israel behaves, and it's problematic, and it's wrong, and it subjugates an entire population to live under a brutal occupation. What we didn't expect is that our own government would facilitate that discrimination against us as Americans. Let me ask you about that secret memorandum of understanding. The Arab American Institute is calling for that memorandum to be released, for the text to be released to the public. Is it unusual that it is secret? And why do you think releasing the text is important? A bilateral agreement between two countries is not necessarily released. What is unusual is that an MOU of this type was required for a country to enter a visa waiver program. If you look at the 40 other countries, there may have been MOUs entered in between the two countries with regards to security requirements or other issues, but we've never seen one where the MOU is addressing the historic and decades-long discrimination of American citizens. That's what I think sets this apart. And that's what sets this entire process of admitting Israel into this program apart. We've had in conversations with, with U.S. officials who've said, you know, this process that we're going through with regards to Israel is unprecedented. And I said very directly, that's the tell. That's how you know they should not be part of this program. We are jumping through an extensive amount of hoops, including legal hoops. Like part of why the MOU is so important is it attempted to redefine reciprocity when we know what the statutory requirement of the law is. So that's the first point. Second point I would make is that there was a draft of the, the MOU released. And, and I think we have every reason to believe the veracity of that document is, is correct, that it's, it's probably what is indeed there. Our issue, though, is to hold our own government accountable, which is to say, you have have not formally released this document that allows for the discrimination of American citizens. And you have to own this policy. I don't want a version that was leaked to media. I want the U.S. government to release the version that says my passport as a U.S. passport holder is not going to be treated the same as somebody else's. And yet you privilege them by allowing them to enter into this program. U.S. officials are saying that Israel's admission to the visa waiver program will benefit not only Israelis who will be able to come to the United States for 90 days without a visa, but U.S. citizens who are dual nationals who should now have easier access and fewer restrictions on travel to Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories than they did before. It seems that it will, in fact, be easier for some Americans trying to enter Israel or the West Bank who've been delayed at the border or not admitted because they are of Palestinian origin or are Arab Americans or Muslims. Why do you and others think the changes Israel is going to make or has made to its own entry procedures for U.S. citizens are inadequate? What are the problems that remain? Very simply put, too little, too late. The fact that Palestinian Americans had to enter the West Bank and Gaza uh, through Jordan's Allenby Bridge, uh, they're transiting through this Israel to get into the occupied territories. The fact that they weren't allowed to do that through Ben-Gurion is a wrong and reprehensible policy and shouldn't have been allowed to stay in place as long as it did. The fact that this 
agreement now allows Palestinian Americans to travel through Ben-Gurion, too little, too late. That's the first point I would make. The threshold <laughs> is equal treatment of its citizens. It's not discriminate less. The second point is, even with this announcement, and there were many Palestinian Americans who were pleased to be able to travel directly through the airport as opposed to transiting through the bridge. A difficult process indeed, one that when I, I personally did uh, for the first time ever two summers ago with, with my two uh, adult children. And the experience we had there was really quite unfortunate, but it is how this discriminatory treatment is allowed. Yes, that that is a, an improvement, but during this trial period, we have accounts of countless discrimination, both upon entry and exit of Palestinian Americans. We have people who entered using their U.S. passports, were told, put that away, you don't need it, and required to be admitted using their Palestinian IDs. Again, not, <laughs> not the way that this program is supposed to work. Indeed, one such account I heard came from the Advocacy Director of American Muslims for Justice in Palestine, one of 11 civil society organizations signing on to a strongly worded public statement of protest against the Biden administration's decision to accept Israel into the visa waiver program. They include the Muslim Public Affairs Council, the Palestinian Christian Alliance for Peace, Jewish Voice for Peace Action, the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, and the Council on American Islamic Relations. Here's Aya Ziada sharing her experience of entering Israel through the Ben-Gurion Airport. I myself went a few weeks ago, a month ago, with my boss. I went through the airport for the first time. I'm Palestinian-American myself. It was only my second time ever being able to go went through the airport. Getting in wasn't too hard. However, I was asked who my father and my grandfather were. That's a question that Israelis are not going to be asked when they enter the United States. So that's racial profiling. That's number one. They took my passport for 20 minutes. I sat down. They gave it back to me. They let me go. But leaving, they put you through a very dehumanizing process. They stripped searched me for an hour. They took away all of my stuff, my shoes. They put me through two machines. They put a handheld machine up my shirt and down my pants. They took apart all of my stuff, literally went through every single item and did not communicate a single thing. And it, uh, what appeared to be a TSA separate specifically for Americans, but most of who you saw going through there were of Arab, Palestinian, Muslim backgrounds. Despite the fact that they were letting people in easily, they were letting us out in a very difficult way. After that, they took away my passport. I couldn't get through passport control. They made me go through the passport control desk. They took my passport, asked me who my dad and my grandpa were again. More racial profiling made me sit down for another 15 minutes. So the whole security process took an hour and 20 minutes. The other issue is freedom of movement once you're within. There's checkpoints. There's a lot of issues with the checkpoints, lots of issues with the freedom of movement. And one of the biggest things is the disinclusion of Gaza and the separation of Gaza from the visa waiver program. I'm curious why you were subjected to such a thoroughgoing and very intrusive search on leaving Israel. I, I could understand it better on your arrival, but you're leaving the country. Why do they do that? Because they want to show the U.S. that they're letting people in, but they want to make you, they want to dehumanize you, essentially. It's just a dehumanizing process. The whole purpose of the month and a half trial was for the U.S. to see the reciprocity rate increase What's easier for Israel to do? To let people in easily, but then give them hell when they're leaving. Aya Zieda, thanks for sharing your experience with us. This is Understanding Israel-Palestine. 
I'm speaking today to Maya Berry, Executive Director of the Arab American Institute, a political and policy arm of the Arab American community. We're talking about the U.S. decision to accept Israel into the Visa Waiver Program. This is a program that allows citizens of about 40 countries to travel to the United States without needing to obtain a visa. Her organization and at least 11 others are expressing outrage that Israel would be accepted into this program without meeting, they say, the stated requirements. And the trial program, I understand that it was quite short. Was it shorter than other countries have had to face? And is it still going on? The trial period was scheduled to conclude at the end of September, and then we admitted them under this fiscal year. And I'm happy to explain why I think the timeline is important here uh, for us to understand. I have to admit, I'm I'm not aware of another trial period for another country. That's not to say that there isn't one, but I'm not aware of one. More directly to the point, I'm not aware of one of the other 40 countries' local embassy Uh, the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, having to create on their website a form so that Americans could submit examples of their discriminatory treatment. When you talk about frustration is palpable, it's because we all know, our own government knows, that we are not treated equally in this process and have never been. We were not treated historically, and we're not treated during the trial period that was put in place, and yet the political decision was made to move forward with their entry into the visa waiver program. 15 U.S. senators wrote a letter to Secretary of State Anthony Blinken dated September 8th that said they were concerned that Israel was being allowed entry into the visa waiver program despite not meeting the requirements of the program. They point out in the letter that a promise by Israel to meet the requirements is not the same as actually meeting them and said that Israel should be encouraged to apply again in 2024 after it actually satisfies the requirements. The fact that a decline in Israeli travel to the United States because of COVID made Israel eligible for the visa waiver program and the possibility that this circumstance may not recur in the future is no reason to bend the rules and make a special exception for Israel, they argue. They assert that the principle of blue is blue must be respected. Could you address how COVID affected Israel's eligibility for this program? And the principle of blue is blue. I was not familiar with that axiom. Can you explain what it means? Yes, I'll start with blue is blue because it's uh, simpler than the the other point. And the other point is what I was alluding to a second ago when I said I can say more about the statutory requirements of the program. Blue blue is that as a U.S. passport holder, my blue passport requires that I be treated uh, equally as any other American citizen traveling to that country. It was, I believe, Condoleezza Rice who, when we first brought this to her attention in a discussion, uh, made the comment, you know, blue is blue, that when you have a U.S. passport holder, you're a U.S. passport holder. And we all have equal rights. Your passport is not any different than my passport. That's the concept of blue is blue. And throughout this entire process over the past two years with officials from the Biden administration, both at the Department of Homeland Security and at the State Department, that has been stated to us frequently. Trust us, they will not be admitted into the program unless they can meet the requirements of the program and blue is blue. Yet here we are, which clearly means actually that's that's not the case. W- with regards to the law, because remember, we the way that one is admitted into this program is that Congress passed a law saying we will have a U.S. uh, visa waiver program with countries. Once they are admitted, it means the rights of those citizens to travel to us uh, for 90 days or less will be allowed, and the country will give the reciprocal right to our citizens. It's a good program. To be able to travel without a visa is a wonderful thing. It it is about economic development for 
improves both countries' economies. All of that is, is certainly there. The reciprocity piece was a pretty simple requirement. The other piece that's important and that the senators are referring to in their letter is that there is a visa refusal rate that's required to participate into the program without getting too technical about it. It literally means when an individual citizen from that country comes to the United States, can we be assured that they will not overstay their visa? And there is a, a refusal rate that's associated with that. Israel has not qualified for the visa waiver program because of their visa refusal rate historically. And the reason that we were dealing with September 30th, 2023 federal fiscal year deadline, the reason we believe this process became highly politicized and uh, egregious in terms of the way that it is supposed to follow a process. The State Department nominates, the Department of Homeland Security uh, verifies that they can meet the requirements of the law and therefore a country is admitted, is because until COVID travel rates, Israel didn't meet the other requirement of the, the program. So the rush to do this by September 30th is because if the application had to restart and we would be looking at post-COVID travel rates, then Israel doesn't meet two requirements of the law. One is reciprocity, the, the one that involves the discrimination against our community and those who advocate for Palestinian rights. And then the other would be its refusal rate. Now, we have focused on the reciprocity issue because it's the one that directly impacts us. But to see, as the senators have pointed out, to see this process politicized this way and expedited when we know they have not ceased their discrimination of Americans at their border has really been a, a deep disappointment. Let me just make sure I understand this. Let me explain it this way. When you enter the country on a 90-day visitor visa, you need to leave. If you do not leave, then that means you have overstayed your travel visa. If a country has a higher than 3% refusal rate, that means its citizens have come to the United States and stayed. If they don't meet the re that requirement of the law, they should not be part of the visa waiver program. Because what that means is our consular officers have to exercise greater care in deciding who gets a visa and not because that country's individual citizens come to the U.S. and overstay their visas. So does that mean more Israeli visitors are coming to the United States and overstaying their visa than vice versa? That's correct. Okay. Talk to me about the political context in which this decision took place. Why do you think the Biden administration decided to grant Israel entry into this program, even though it doesn't qualify. That particular piece is one that is really difficult to, to address. <laughs> there is no logical explanation other than we wanted to give Israel a political perk and had to expedite doing it in order to fall under the September 30th, 2023 deadline. I've been doing this work for a long time. I am familiar with U.S. laws that aren't applied to the state of Israel. So we do have, regrettably, a policy often where we don't hold the Israelis accountable the way that we should with regards to our policies. But what we weren't expecting, and even though there were indications that this was possible, what I didn't expect is that our government would go through this process of basically not meeting the requirements of the law in order to allow this political park to go through. What was compromised here is the rights of American citizens. When I travel with my U.S. passport, blue is not blue for me. I will not receive the same treatments. Palestinian Americans will not receive the same treatments. Americans, including American Jews, American Muslims, and others who advocate on Palestinian human rights, African Americans who are advocates of Palestinian human rights will not receive the same treatment. That has been historically what's happened. That's what happened during the trial period. That's what will continue to happen. And the fact that our own government said, that's okay, go ahead and we'll enter them into the program.
it's an extraordinary breach of, of trust and a real disappointment. This is a political perk for Israel. Do you think the Biden administration was trying to curry favor with the Israeli government, trying to curry favor with the pro-Israel lobby in this country? They should answer that question for you. I think it was a political misstep, and I think it was a violation of U.S. law. I've not spent a lot of time contemplating why you would want to do this specifically for Benjamin Netanyahu's government. I've not spent a lot of time thinking through the politics of this. We've been focused on demonstrating to our own government how this is not compatible with existing law and allows discriminatory policies to be extended to U.S. citizens, and it's wrong. The substance of this is discriminatory policy is now being facilitated by my own government. The Arab American Institute held a special town meeting, uh, a virtual town meeting after the decision was announced. What went on? What's the upshot? What is the Arab American Institute calling on its membership on sympathetic Americans to do with regards to this decision? The reason we convened the emergency town hall is that there was an element of our community who generally was shocked by this, who weren't doing a day-to-day, who have a very real lived experience of discrimination at the border. We're talking about families separated from their kids sometimes, their kids taken into individual rooms. They look through their social media. We're talking about strip searches. We're talking about outright denial of entry. We're talking about hours and hours long delays so that when you are admitted, the bus that takes you to your destination. The border's almost basically closed. You have to miss that. There's a variety of things. We have an ideological exclusion in place. We had two members of Congress who were denied entry because they support the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. There are countless reasons for why our folks would say, I can't believe this happened. So we convened the town hall meeting to give them an opportunity to hear what is happening, how we are challenging this decision, and also to hear from others. We heard from a Palestinian American who is living in Ramallah, and we heard from a Palestinian American who traveled with his entire family during this trial period. Both accounts were examples of continued discriminatory treatment. It was an opportunity to come together as a community to say, we're not done pushing back on this and demanding accountability. What we're asking folks to do, and that obviously includes allies who care about the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment of our Constitution, which we believe is actually in place here. We knew we had no legal recourse when Israel just denied our entry, but we think there may be a different approach here, given that now our own government is the one that's admitted and privileged another country into this program at the expense of our rights. We had a conversation on what one can do next. Yes, we are calling for the official release of the MOU, because as I said, we believe they negotiated our rights away in that document, and it's important that it be public and that our own government owns what happened there. We're calling for congressional oversight. Congress passed that law and the, the both the letter and the intent of that law is not being honored with Israel's participation in this program. So those, those are two things that happened. There's something called the Administrative Procedures Act, which is a way that provides oversight on how U.S. laws are, are made, so to speak. So a partner organization, the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, has already sued trying to have Israel's entry into this program tra- challenged through the Administrative Procedures Act. And I think that one of the the only ways to address this, short of a congressional oversight and a reversal of, of a poor decision by the administration themselves, is going to be litigation. I think it's going to be the denial or the discriminatory treatment of an Arab American at the border, a Palestinian American, or an American who, who advocates Palestinian human rights. 
But I want to be clear, we talk about the domestic implications of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict frequently. We see it when it comes to the First Amendment, Amendment protected speech on college campuses. We see it and take different forms. Uh, and we care deeply about improving U.S. policy towards the Palestinians who've lived under brutal occupation for decades. This is not a foreign policy issue in this specific visa waiver piece. It is about protecting the rights of Americans and acknowledging that Israel's apartheid system of subjecting Palestinians, millions of Palestinians to discriminatory treatment is now being extended to American citizens. That's wrong. And and we must work to correct that. Maya Berry, Executive Director of the Arab American Institute. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to Understanding Israel-Palestine. If you'd like to listen to the full interview, you can check out our podcast or go to our program page on the KKFI website at kkfi.org and listen online.